0: Judson Bottom by Dodge Zelko Chapter 22 It Comes Unbidden The subsequent raid on Herschel Gimby's place proves far less eventful. He answers the door wearing his medical collar, silk boxers, and a rumpled shirt that reads No Hablo Stupido, having been stirred from the hungover throes of a restive sleep. Agent Pedroza informs him he is wanted for questioning in relation to his association with a criminal element known as Riotville. In his face, I read the validation of a man's buried suspicions being confirmed. He is allowed to dress under supervision, then comes without a fight. I wish I could say the police department takes a temporary staff cut and that everyone involved in the raid gets to go home and recuperate. Everyone who made it out alive. But the fact of the matter is, a disaster like this only increases the workload, and increases it tenfold. I have a long, rigorous afternoon of debriefing and deposition giving, reliving every detail ad nauseum, no matter how humdrum or traumatic. Crazy Annie's barricade, Flipsy writhing on the floor, D'Amato's surrender, and the obvious matter of Trossen's death. It all needs to be formatted to fit inside a filing cabinet somewhere, reduced from calamity to liability, tribulation to itemization. Within the headache of it all, there are times when I'm grateful for the button-down wooden process. A report is a far more wieldy thing than a memory, and it can be sorted away at my own discretion. Around four o'clock, as I'm returning to my cubicle with a fresh-brewed cup of torquay, a call comes in on my extension. I pick up, vainly expecting, for whatever reason, Nadim and Javaria, as if they don't have other priorities at this time. Instead, I find I've entered into a conversation with my brother. For a moment, I think he's caught in a windstorm, then I realize he is just exhaling violently into the phone, Christ, Mickey, you had me worried sick. We saw in the news what happened, and when it said a Judson officer had been killed, they didn't release the name. Then I couldn't get through to you on your phone. I tell him my phone is out of commission, omitting that it was obliterated by Buckshot. I assure him of my health, that somehow I walked out of there without a scratch on me. Thank God. I swear I can almost hear his heart beating. Once he gets a handle on himself, he says... Valerie's on the line, too. She was just as worried as I was. But I've already gathered that much. I can hear her lovely face turned away from the receiver, weeping. Her name is called. Smiling, she takes a fortifying sip from her cocktail. Pink lipstick smudges the rim. She proceeds to the front of the room. Strangers and acquaintances alike stoke her confidence with cries of support. The man at the folding table hands her a microphone. It's a ceremonious transaction, like Arthur being bestowed Excalibur. The degree of responsibility is not lost on her. Her chest dips and rises in slow, deep breaths, but she never loses that smile. Devout showmanship. Never let your nerves show if you can help it, although maybe just a little. It can endear you to an audience. She wears her hair in pigtails, this woman. Her figure can be described as stocky. The man at the table clicks once on his laptop. Through dual JBL speakers, the opening strains to Nancy Sinatra's summer wine blossom. Then the karaoke operator himself, a fellow with the name Chuck embroidered on his double-breasted white cowboy shirt, rises and takes the stage beside her, singing the part of Lee Hazelwood. All around me, most of the brown buoy patrons are enraptured. The song seems to be taking them somewhere, somewhere I don't have a ticket to follow. I can only be a voyeur to their journey. As for Wojcik, he is three or four brandies in, nodding his head, tapping his foot on the brass railing that runs around all four sides of the bar. Periodically, he'll catch himself whistling off-key. He leans in. Me and Joe used to do a killer version of this. What's most sad is that he can't even get all the way through the lie without hating himself. He blinks a few times, clears his throat, slams another brandy. I tell him, yeah, I think I remember that. Mel, the bartender, comes by and swipes two baskets away from us, empty except for sheets of greasy wax paper. I ate my burger and fries voraciously, made an unapologetic pig of myself. It was the first I'd eaten all day. Mel has help tonight, an extra bartender. For a Monday, this place is buzzing. Karaoke diehards, kindred dreamers who have shown each other nothing but support. I don't spot anyone else who seems to have wandered in on a whim like Wojcik and me, but we are regular enough not to upset the place's equilibrium. This is the Monday lineup. This is their impetus to begin the work week afresh, something to subdue the proverbial Monday blues. I think if an outsider were to try and infiltrate this scene tonight, they might get mangled, especially if it was perceived they were in any way denigrating one of the performers. The extra bartender is an oafish, white-haired man with triple chins, triple everything. Sweat darkens the pits of his red t-shirt to the color of Bordeaux. His jeans sag. He has no ass, but his crack is a mile long, and it's on regular display throughout the night. I was relieved when it was Mel who served us our food. Nancy and Lee go on interminably, bobbing and smiling at each other in those awkward instrumental interludes, of which there seem to be no shortage. As far as I can tell, they almost never make use of the teleprompter. The door opens, and a rush of swampy, cigarette-laced air eddies in, cool in comparison to the bar's close-packed body heat. I swallow what's left in my pint and leave to take a piss. Wojcik sits there alone, ass sagging off the stool, whistling. How I wish he would quit. You know how some people whistle when they've got nothing to say? The chief whistles when he's got too much on his mind. He becomes a tea kettle, blowing off steam. Beyond dealing with an unprecedented crisis, this afternoon he went personally to the Trossen residence and broke the news to Sarah. Out of respect, I'll start referring to her by her real name, not Nicole Kidman. He stayed with her for over half an hour. When he came back, his shirt front was smeared with mascara. Flipsy is expected to pull through, albeit not without permanent scarring and disfigurement. I haven't been to the hospital. I'm not sure I'll go tomorrow, either. Overall, I'm told two sheriffs were killed, Poughkeepsie and Fabian were their names, and another is in trauma with critical wounds. Thirteen Riotville extremists were taken into custody, nine of them wounded, and they sustained a body count of four. That's including Crazy Annie. Regional media is already describing the harrowing showdown at an Adele scrapyard as a bloodbath and for once, they aren't exaggerating. In the fermented odors of the brown-buoy restroom, I make room for a great deal more spotted cow. I don't presume anyone is in the stall because the door is left wide open, but I'm corrected by the sound of a man groaning. It's not your typical straining bathroom groan, but something more existential, something that in a weird way resonates within me. I zip my fly, flush the urinal, and risk popping my head inside the stall. Can I help your faggot? The man slurs with unsteady eyes, winding a mile of toilet paper around his hand before tearing it off. He sways a little. His head smacks against the wall, and his eyes close. With pants around his ankles, shit caked to his taint and a wad of toilet paper binding his right hand like boxing tape, he starts to snore. Tell you the truth, it sounds peaceful, if a bit apneotic. I wash my hands and leave him for someone else to find. Wojcik has vacated his stool and left our drinks unattended. Not that we're a couple of sorority girls who need to worry about that sort of thing. I'm about to go check for him on the deck overlooking the pier, the one where he sat reading Ismail's letter by moonlight just nine days ago. That's when I hear Chuck the Karaoke Man, having finally resigned his role as Lee Hazelwood, announce, Let's put our hands together for Spencer, folks! I don't think I quite believe it, not until the very moment he opens his mouth and channels an adequate Sinatra impression. My senses are lying to me, I think. Maybe I didn't actually encounter that asshole passed out on the john, either. I slumped down on my stool, accepting a reality wherein everything I've seen today can exist. Be it a young father shot dead, a girl strung up naked on a live feed, or the very chief of police I've known for twelve years relaying jauntily to his audience, I did it my way. People have different ways of coping, I guess. That's the thing about daylight. It comes unbidden. You can choose not to set an alarm, you can bury your face under the pillow in obstinance, you can wedge plugs into your ears, and it finds you all the same, seeping in through cracks you didn't know existed, warming the solar panels of your mind and rebooting you against your will, when you would just as soon stay dormant a little while longer, or maybe a lot while longer. I throw back the sheets, lying there in the indentation of my curled fetal body. I have always slept that way, knees close to my chest. Rhonda would make fun of me and say all I was missing was a thumb in my mouth. I stretch out my limbs, unfold, listening to my joints pop. They complain exponentially louder with each passing year. I rise, do my stretches, sometimes a set of push-ups if I'm feeling ambitious and not too hungover. Today, they are out of the question. Then stumble into the kitchen to brave the daylight, the autocratic, unbidden daylight. Coffee is preset the night before, my paper waits somewhere in the front yard, There was a time when the regimen would have been broken up by conversation, or by a child hopping into my lap, who, like a golden retriever, remained blissfully unaware of his own size. Now, if I want background noise, I resort to TV or radio, and on summer mornings, when the windows are open, I hear the neighborhood energize around me, the communal slog into activity. Coffee mug in hand, I unlock the door and walk onto the screen porch, having deigned to throw on a t-shirt and a pair of basketball shorts. The sight of a black Escalade parked outside my house is mildly startling. Rousseau, dressed in a fresh-pleated suit, comes up the walk. Morning, I say, my voice betraying to us both that I'm in fact pleased to see her. Good morning. Sorry to drop in on you so early like this. She stands at the bottom step. I open the screen door as a signal for her to come in. My team's shoving out today. No reason to stick around, I guess. You got time for a cup of coffee? She accepts, selecting the same wicker chair where Nadim sat when he brought me Ismail's letter. How do you take it? Black is fine. When I've returned and we are both seated, she compliments my home, or what little she's seen of it. I ask when she gets to return to her own life. I'm sure you're about ready to set fire to that motel by now. You're not far off, she smiles. I'll be able to pop home tonight and make sure Gil hasn't gotten himself in any trouble. Must be hard for him, I say. For both of you. We're used to it by now. Not having kids makes it easier. I don't know how some of these agents do it, the ones with big, sprawling families. We agreed early on it wouldn't be responsible of us to have kids, given how little time we actually spend at home. A breeze wafts in. A few helicopter seed pods attached to the screen, defying gravity. I ask about Gil's job. Turns out he is a business lawyer, representing an array of clients across the Midwest. A lawyer and an FBI agent. I'd hate to be the kid who TP's your house. At home, we try and leave all that behind us. That's one nice thing about never seeing each other. When we do, we don't waste a damn minute. To my surprise, she reaches into her pocket and strips the laminate off a fresh pack of cigarettes. I've spent the better part of a day with this woman, and never did I peg her as a smoker. Do you mind? I answer, not at all. She offers me one from the pack. I don't smoke, I say, even as I slide one out. Yeah, me neither, only with coffee. We watch my neighbor, a master plumber named Terry Berger, drop his keys while crossing the lawn to where his Kia is parked in the driveway. The grass cushions the sound of the fall. He stands in confusion at the car door, giving himself a thorough stop-and-frisk, pivoting on his heels in an aggravated series of 360s. I came by to say it's been good working with you, Mickey. Rousseau draws my groggy attention away from the neighbor. Judson Bottom is lucky to have you. Well, we were luckier to have you folks come along. I toast her with my mug. Any chance you'll be back when this whole thing goes to trial? It's possible. If that day comes, I'll owe you a stronger drink. Rousseau and I are on the same wavelength in a lot of ways. I'd bet any money she is thinking she doesn't know me well enough to flat-out ask how I'm coping with what went down yesterday. I have other people for that, she assumes, more appropriate sounding boards to whom I can vent my misgivings about nearly being processed into beef tips, or having to take a human life. I presume there are some mandatory counseling sessions in my future, but I'm not entirely sure. Either the union will let me know, or they won't. My first drag plummets me back in time, back to the last cigarette I ever had. I'd been clean for two months and took as many drags before flicking it down in disgust. Not disgust with the act itself, disgust for how it made me feel, as sated as coming into a woman. They say a man can't recreate his first orgasm. I suspect he could if he abstained for seven-plus years. The same applies to cigarettes. I wade into a numb, easy pool, equivalent to dragging from a joint, glancing over at Rousseau, enjoying hers like any other, unaware of the transformation levitating inside me, unaware that she's aided and abetted in undoing years of progress. But what is progress, anyway? This particular failure is trifling compared to the others on my rap sheet. This failure won't harm anyone but myself, and honestly, who's around to lament that? Another day at the office. Just as the agent's presence downstairs felt palpable, so does their non-presence. People are back to speaking in their normal registers, speculating at full volume. A card is passed around for Flipsy, and a monetary collection for Sarah Trossen. After much back and forth in my head, I offer to hand deliver the card once all the signatures are gathered. A visit can't be put off in good taste for much longer. I've heard that Flipsy is in the same wing as Khadija Mubarak, just a few rooms apart. Wojcik forwarded me the nurse's report, citing the physical tolls of her captivity, Widespread bruising, hairline fractures to the left clavicle and ulna, malnutrition, dehydration, and a rape kit which came back negative. Had it been otherwise, I would have had to correct my leniency and not slang to motto. At noon, I march down to the garage with Flipsey's hallmark and board my cruiser. The sound of chains rattling as the overhead door rises echoes through the underground structure. I maneuver up the ramp, driving toward blue sky and fluffy white clouds. So at odds with yesterday. Why do I pass Buckley Street? Is it intuition or procrastination? It entails a minor detour en route to Memorial Hospital, but I feel validated when I see press vans lining the curb once again, reporters swarming the corner. I pull over behind WTMJ out of Milwaukee. So resumes the everlasting waltz between police and media. On my passenger seat is a borrowed photograph of Khadijah smiling on a warped boardwalk. I take it with me. My attempts at crowd dispersal are not met with indignation or protest like last time. Instead, they train their cameras and microphones on me. They want a statement from Judson Bottom PD. Their eyes bug for it, their mouths never fully close, either bleeding demands or hanging in fatuous anticipation. The same networks who last week wanted their macabre scoop on a homegrown terrorist will now take Khadija and make her the poster child for xenophobia. I imagine them pulling out their hair, trying to unearth a picture of her in a hijab, something that will ooze castigation from front covers and promos. Editorials will abound, phoned in by nationally read columnists, conflating her defilement with the defilement of progressivism, harping on and on about a requiem for some American ideal. I tell them I'm no press secretary. If they want an official statement, they'll have to move their dust cloud over to the police station. As expected, this does nothing to deter them, nothing to abate their frenzy. What does, however, is the recoil of a lawnmower at the top of the hill. I follow their shifted lines of vision, only to see Nadeem appear around the corner of the house. I expected him to be at the hospital. They must have finally sent him home. He pushes the mower ahead, eating a clean strip through the overgrown blades, shooting bales of green clippings off to one side. His hair is thrown into a ponytail. The front of his untucked shirt is only buttoned halfway. His jeans are clearly those reserved for housework. He wears a pair of sunglasses and keeps his head lowered. Anyone without context might think he was some strung-out rock star. The press clamor and shout questions until they're bloody in the throat. He remains deaf behind his sound wall, vacillating back and forth across the hilltop before he challenges the gradient. It will be punishing work better suited to a younger man's leg muscles. But anyone with half a brain can guess exhaustion is Nadim's main goal. Ten minutes in, the job is only halfway complete. The press grow disenchanted and begin trickling back to their vans. Perhaps I'm further delaying my hospital visit, but I stay, leaned against the railing at the bottom of the stairs. I stay until the last one leaves. Judson Bottom is a town of roughly 30,000, located an hour's drive northwest of Milwaukee. The bottom itself is nowhere to send a postcard from, though visitors still have the option. It is an industrial town, strafed and scarred with railroad tracks, service roads, broken paned warehouses, and the ubiquitous mustardy smog of the power plant. Rent is cheap, The past two decades have seen an influx of hapless laborers ejected by the dog-eat-dog competition of Milwaukee. Yes, the bottom is expanding. Condos are being built. Culture is being introduced into the storefronts. and entrepreneurial fervor is taking hold of the town. True, many fail, as evidenced by regular vacancies and foreclosures, but others persist and stay afloat and eventually thrive. Take the room key with you so I don't have to get out of the tub. The Super 8 on Brown Deer Road, late at night, Milwaukee, her neck of the woods. We are out of ice, ice to cradle the second bottle of Chardonnay. The bucket sat beside the tub with an easy reach as the bathroom suffused with steam, cubes melting into chips, into slivers, into water. My pruny fingers, like the flesh when you pull away an old bandage, are evidence of how long we must have stewed in there, petting, purring, kissing. Now and then, I unclogged the drain and ran more scalding water. She likes it hotter than I do. I joked that she would make an invincible lobster. My skin is red all over, from my chest down to my toes. I haven't worked up the nerve to tell her yet. No, of course not. I keep waiting for some convenient break in all the bliss to clear my throat and go, oh, before I forget. I stuff the room key in the pocket of my black uniform pants. My uniform shirt is pulled over a white tee. Just a cop on a booty call, getting more ice. The sober, steamless, sanitized air of the corridor brings my predicament back into focus. A partially deaf occupant has left their door ajar. A TV blares the evening news. Isis confirms one of their top commanders was killed in a strike on Mosul. Just like at the Osthof, there is a central area where the corridor becomes a balcony, and I can overlook the lobby, the receptionist at her desk, the one with the peacock feather earrings who is so forthcoming with Valerie's room number. Something tells me we won't be playing these childish games anymore. We won't have the need. Valerie will come live with me, I suppose, I'm not naive. Chicago-bred and Oberlin-educated, she won't last five minutes in conservative little Judson Bottom. And I'm ready to say sayonara to that town anyway. What I'm less open to is being a city cop again. I've lost my edge, my unflinching instinct. Even if I wanted to return, it's out of the question. I don't have the lean assuredness, the steely nerve it takes to stay alive in the ghetto. I'm sane enough to own up to these truths. Maybe I could get it all back, sure, but how long would it take? How many fuck-ups would it cost? We'll have to strike a compromise, Valerie and I. One of the white flight suburbs encircling Chicago. She has money. We can tap into that secret savings account Daddy set up for her. The loud, chugging machine dumps ice into my bucket, but not at the rate I would prefer. For every five seconds of deafening thunder, a handful of cubes shudder out. I jam my thumb into the black button over and over. In between these stingy evacuations, I can't help but eavesdrop on a commanding voice floating up from the hotel lobby. An all-too-familiar voice. It's a voice I realize I have been half-expecting to hear since I first pulled into the Super 8. Even as Valerie and I were shut safely in our room, bending the mattress, jarring the headboard, gasping into each other's throats, there was always a subverted part of me that remained tense, twinging and alive like a bug's antenna, prepared to react when those sharp knocks sounded at the door. Forgetting the ice bucket, I hazard a few steps closer to the balcony just until the crown of Gavin's head becomes visible. Then the entire head. Then his shoulders. He, too, is in full uniform, and apparently baffled by the receptionist's claim that another cop came by two hours ago asking about the same woman. I never saw them leave, she says, but they may have used one of the side exits to draw less attention. A room number, Gavin says. Give me a room number. In that demand is couched more than banal rage. I alone, his brother, can hear the rupture of heartbreak, that cold point of steel entering his back not once but twice, burrowing up to the hilt. How often have I kept myself awake at night, imagining this moment? Me, the composed, collected, and somehow noble one. Valerie, weeping like a damsel behind me. Gavin, sputtering, red in the face, boiling over with homicidal compulsion. How many scripts have I drafted in my mind, always polishing and refining? As if in some way, I can turn his mind around and make him see my side of things. You're right. It was a mistake, me marrying Valerie. I should have recognized that you two were better for each other. I should have seen that if you hadn't been tied down by a wife and child, you would have wound up together. Maybe on some level I did know those things. Maybe I was rubbing it in your face. I have what you want and what we both know you can never have. That was spiteful of me, Mickey. That was sadistic and cruel, and I'm sorry. Apology accepted. His footsteps come pounding up the stairwell. I can hear them echoing through the door on my right. The door he will appear through at any moment. With the same quick reaction time I just derided myself for not possessing, I grab the room key from my pocket and slide it through a lock behind me. It accesses a laundry room. The door contains a narrow window. I crouch beneath it with the lights off, doused in a cold, manic sweat, listening to Gavin erupt into the corridor. Every appliance is still and empty. My throat feels hoarse, constricted. My breath has left me the same as my courage. Does he take any notice of the abandoned ice bucket still perched beneath the dispenser? As I hear him go pounding toward Valerie's room, I swoon in astonishment at myself. What I've done is undoable. There is no other reason I can invent for emerging from a darkened laundry room without any laundry to speak of. No other reason than the truth. I'm hiding. Can I bear to see Gavin's face when he realizes this? Can I bear to see Valerie's? Already he is rapping on the door. Not pounding. He is smarter than that. I wait. She will be hoisting herself out of the tub, toweling off, a little annoyed but more amused. I told you to take your room key along. That stuff makes you so forgetful. Ah, yes, I chuckled to myself. The bag of weed sitting openly on the nightstand. We may as well be selling it to children. He can't conceivably think any less of us. Valerie's scream alerts me when the door is opened. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't a scream. So I suspect he must have attacked her, pushed his way in at the first turn of the knob, thrown her vulnerable, towel-wrapped body on the floor. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? This is what I hear. For Christ's sake, how did it come to this? A showdown in a hotel. I don't have the stomach. I don't have the fucking stomach for it. I flee the laundry room, glancing down the corridor just long enough to verify they are both in the suite. Gavin's pitched voice is unmistakable. I fly down the stairwell, the lapels of my uniform flailing as I bound away, skipping two steps at a time, nearly twisting my ankle on several occasions. Wouldn't that be some expedient karma? The two of them find me collapsed on the landing with a swollen foot. Instead, I manage to burst through the bottom door and avoid the lobby, heeding the receptionist's unintentional advice. A side exit will draw less attention, though it's impossible to comprehend that anyone but the four of us are patronizing this hotel, that other realities are playing out right now in spitting distance, sectioned off in their own identical suites. A glass door at the end of the hall. The exit sign may as well read, Coward's Way Out. Weakling's Escape Route. Real men, please leave via lobby. I am so detached by adrenaline that normal feelings of disgrace are unfelt. That will come later. Yes, that will come when there is time to reflect at some North Side tavern where no one will ever come searching. I throw myself at the door and shatter into the night. Nothing at all like a Judson Bottom night. There are neons and traffic and music and voices. My feet scuffle along the butt strown pavement toward where my sportster is parked near the Port Cochere. A man leans against the hood of his Chrysler enjoying a cigarette. What wild thoughts he must be thinking about me, a disheveled, unarmed cop, looking like I've just survived a kidnapping attempt. And then I witness the alarm on his face, and I think, isn't it a bit too pronounced? I take in the glasses and the mail clerk-style dress, and I come to realize I know this man. And he knows me. And everything clicks together. Gavin was brought here, apparently while on duty. That's his cruiser parked askew in a nearby slot. He was notified by none other than Rhonda's private investigator, Emery What's-His-Fuck, Emery Detro. Gavin wouldn't take his word for it based on the photographs alone, inconclusive as they were. I know him. I know how much benefit of the doubt he is capable of lavishing on people, especially those he loves and deems faithful. He would have insisted on seeing it with his own eyes, the two of us together. Emery opens his mouth, but there is no form to it, no tautness, like someone trying to smile without lips. Tiny little pinpricks of red light, they materialize from the darkness, the weird, bottomless black veil that suddenly shrouds everything. How can I even be upright? I am so disoriented, unsure of my place in the world. For one hopeful moment, I think I have just been shaken from a dream. The red lights, what do they signify? My jaw is locked tight, like my molars are soldered together. When I am able to articulate which way is up and which is down, I look down. I see the ground sirloin of a man's face, one arm freed from the sleeve of his blazer, his shirt rent at the button line, exposing his belly, his chest. I have a clump of curly brown hair in my hand. My foot is lodging itself in whatever segment of meat and bone happens to be beneath it. Frail whimpers escape his mouth. I recall he was screaming shortly ago, but has now stopped, lapsed into heavy breathing. There's a rattle in his windpipe. I step back, releasing the clump of wet hair, watching him slump to the asphalt in an abused pinwheel of limbs and tattered cloth. The angles of his body make no sense. The only part of him that moves is his labored chest. Broken ribs crackle within. He breathes like his Chrysler is parked on top of him. Retreating, trying to make sense of the red lights cycling around me like so many luminous gnats, I hear his glasses crunch under my heel. A crowd of people have gathered from the adjacent streets, the one abutting the Super 8's parking lot, a clot of onlookers, everyday freelance journalists equipped with their smartphones. Those are the dots, I finally comprehend. The tiny red lights signaling when video is being recorded. I am cold all over, still highly decentralized. I swear from somewhere I can hear Gavin screaming my name. Or is it Bruno? Or is it Ismail? The horde of videographers close in. Black faces, white faces, Hispanics, driving me backward. They're saying, ain't this the way it goes? Ain't this the road we've taken? They're saying, God willing, ain't it the bottom?